Well, um, not quite a couple months ago, but uh, the, there, was, there was a funeral for Prince Philip, husband of Queen Elizabeth of England. And, and I don't know, if, did any of you watch that or see highlights? Is that what you call highlights of a memorial service? I, I don't know. Uh, but it seemed that way. It, it was pretty remarkable. If, if you're an Anglophile or, or just intrigued by royalty, royalty then, then you were treated to much, not all, but much of the pomp and circumstance that England musters, certainly for for a funeral in the COVID era. Uh, The mood was, of course, somber and funereal, so not matching the joy, say, of a royal wedding, but it was still an an impressive display of royalty, majesty. Of particular interest, to me at least, was the recitation of Philip's titles. Here's what was read. The late, most illustrious and exalted Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Marianoth, and Baron Greenwich, Knight of the most noble order of the Garter, Knight of the most ancient and most noble order of the Thistle, You can do with that what you want. Uh, Member of the Order of Merit, Knight Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order, upon whom had been conferred the Royal Victorian Chain, Grand Master and Knight Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom, one of Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, Admiral of the Fleet, Field Marshal in the Army, and Marshal of the Royal Air Force. And that does not include his titles as husband to the queen, nor does it include all of the titles that Philip gave up just in order to marry Elizabeth. Can you imagine this guy's business card? It's just just, just enormous. So it was quite a display of majesty. And in the best of times, I, I think there's something that intrigues us about royalty, even Americans have no use for a king, right? We're still intrigued by it. There's a, there's a gravitas, there's a weightiness that attends royalty. The titles, the, the clothing, the attendance, the splendor. We almost automatically associate majesty with greatness. And, and, and it's true, greatness attends majesty. But the question before us today that this psalm confronts is, yeah, sure, greatness attends majesty. We expect that. But does goodness, does goodness. And and in the psalm, Psalm 145, our our text this morning, we're going to look at this this song that celebrates the majesty of God and and the declarations of the kingly royalty of God. They, They are impressive. But surprisingly, most of the psalm celebrates something that we don't often associate with royalty, at least royalty here on earth, goodness. So if you're here or you're listening, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. I would invite you as we read through this psalm to consider this. Which would be more important to you in a God? Greatness or goodness? And what if the God of the Bible is accurately portrayed as both great and good? What would that mean for you? And then for the rest of you, you you, you do understand yourselves to be Christians. 
what ought your response be to a God who is absolutely great, but whose greatness is rivaled only by his goodness? And in fact, his greatness is tied up in his goodness. So our big idea this morning is this. Our God is supremely and uniquely worthy of praise because he is both great and good, highly exalted and tenderly near to his people. Our God is supremely and uniquely worthy of praise because he is both great and good, highly exalted and tenderly near to his people. So let's just, let's just work our way through this, through this psalm. Uh, verses 1 and 2, we see we have a call to praise God. David, I, I assume is the psalmist. At least it's called a psalm of David. I, so w- w- I'll just say David. I'll just say David because I, I don't know any better on this. Uh, I exalt you, my God the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. And so here, David recognizes God to be his king. And he, he, that is David, is committed to extolling God. And, but notice, it's not just for a moment, not just for a moment, but forever and ever. Because in David's estimation, this is a God whose worthiness does not wane or fade with time. He's not a God with an expiration date. He's not a God whom David might someday grow bored with. But why? Why is God all that? Who is this God? Why is he worthy of such adulation, such eternal adulation? And the rest of the psalm is committed to explaining why God is worthy to be praised. And, and, and what we're confronted with at the first part is the greatness of God, his transcendence. I want to just give you a little warning. This is going to be a bit theological, this, this sermon today. But, but that's good, right? That's good. I, a warning maybe to increase appetite. It's not a warning of something to, be, to, to fear, right? Something, oh, great, it's theological, that's, that's, that's going to be awesome, right? So the greatness of God, his transcendence, and, and we see this in, in verses 3 through 6. What is David going to praise God for? Well, this, here's kind of a sub-point to this, God is supremely worthy to be praised because he is transcendent, that is, highly exalted or wholly other, high and lifted up above all. And so let's, let's look at verses 3, 5, and 6 in particular here. Verses 3, 5, and 6. We read in verse 3, the Lord is great, is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And so we see here that, that, that God is praised for his greatness. And we might think, okay, so, so what is greatness? Is, is there some strange theological definition that's different than what we might expect? And the answer is No. Not at all. If you have an, an idea of what greatness is, it probably is what David is writing about here. Greatness has to do with being large, being significant, being imposing. Greatness has to do with abundance. In the Bible, a great river is enormous. A great army is formidable. A great God is awesome. A great God is awesome. So, Greatness, at least in the scriptures, is not usually listed like as an attribute per se, like, like love or compassion or power or knowledge. 
But when God is extolled for his greatness, he's being praised for something that we usually call his transcendence. His transcendence. And, and this is what, what, what I mean when I say transcendence. To, to say that God is transcendent means that he is wholly other than us. Holy other, like W-H-O-L-L-Y. Well, he's also holy, H-O-L-Y, but, but here, holy other, completely different than us. He is the great God who rules over all that he has made. We often think of God as being transcendent as being in the heavens, seated on high, that sort of thing. He's powerful, strong, fearsome. Transcendence usually speaks to God, as I said, dwelling in heaven, far from sin, high over creation. It speaks to his exaltation. And in particular, transcendence speaks to God's majesty and his holiness. There is no one like the Lord. And and in our passage, we see that the greatness of God is unsearchable we're told. This means that it can't be quantified because it's just too large. Even if you had like a measuring tape for greatness, you wouldn't be able to measure God's greatness. It wouldn't reach. You, you, you can't plumb the depths of the, the quantity of God's greatness. The Lord is the creator, we're told, and, and he's so radically different than his creation that there is nothing that compares to him. To try to compare the Lord to anything is, is foolish. It, it, it's like language breaks down. There, there are no words to describe the greatness of God because it's unfathomable. But of course, there, there might not be words, but David's going to try anyway. He's going to try anyway. He's, he, he's going to recount, as we'll see, the works of the Lord. They're, they're mighty, strong, powerful. God always has all that he needs to accomplish anything he wants to do. He is absolutely independent and self-sufficient. He has no needs, this God of ours. After God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Moses and Miriam sing that famous duet, right? I hope there's like videotape in heaven so we can see these, these songs of these two sing here. Verse 11, um, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? If any of you saw the royal funeral of Prince Philip, there was a lot of pomp and circumstance. And as impressive as all that was, it pales in comparison to all that attends the Lord. If we could somehow be transported into the very throne room of God, if we could stand in his presence, if we could, we would not survive because God's majesty is so powerful and weighty. It's, it's palpable. It's palpable. I, our, our current body's hearts would, would stop. Our, our lungs would fail. Nothing in our biological system, I think, would go right. And, 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 and maybe, that's why the, maybe that's why there has to be a resurrection before the judgment, just so we can stand in the awesome presence of God. We're going to need a new resurrection body just to survive his presence. 
verse 4, we see there's a call to declare the greatness of God to others. David's praise isn't just going out there in, in the abstract sense. It's directed. His instruction is that one generation will declare God's works to the next. Look at, look at verses 4, 5, and 6. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts, and I will declare your greatness. Friends, our, our praise of the Lord's mighty works plays a vital role in the lives of others. We give testimony to the mighty acts of God to one another in our praise and as witness. And so, just by way of application, I would say, make your praise of God public. Make it public. I mean, yes, there is a place for private devotions and private praise, but it seems to me that more than anything right now, I think the world, our, our country, our, our community, it needs to see and hear public proclamation of the wondrous works of God. Because, you know, science, or at least something that falsely masquerades as science, and intersectionality, they've become like the gods of this age. And, and they're priests, they're representatives, they, they demand obeisance, and woe to the one who refuses to bend the knee and mouth their liturgies. Excommunication from this so-called church occurs in the form of canceling, and, and, and the price is high. But, but, but you, we as, a, as a church, gather together, assemble with the body. Of course, I'm preaching to people who are assembled right now, right? So I'm, I'm literally like preaching to the choir. But, 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 but this is good. This is good. So continue to do that. Take the precautions that are recommended by the church. Do what your conscience allows. But, but gather to proclaim God's praises to one another. Tell your unbelieving friends, but don't stop there, right? Tell each other. And it takes all ages to do this. It's what I love about the church that I'm at. It's what I love about what I see out here is that, is, is, is that all ages are, are represented. And that's important because I need to hear from those who have walked with the Lord longer than I have. I need to hear from those who have walked less time, but but their conversion is still fresh and exciting. I need to hear that. Your presence, your words are testimony to me that God keeps his promises, that our Lord is indeed great, that he is worthy to be praised. And see, here's the thing. God can only be praised forever and ever if the next generations hear of and come to know God. Maybe you've heard it said that Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. And, and that's probably overstated because it puts a lot of emphasis on us. I mean, Jesus is going to build his church. It's going to survive and thrive into eternity. That's, there's no doubt about that. But that statement, the church is one generation away from extinction, it's frighteningly true in this sense. The church marches victoriously into the next generation by virtue of our confession, not our birthright. 
No one automatically becomes a Christian. No one automatically is like born into the faith. You're not redeemed by virtue of parentage. Each person, each individual must hear the gospel and respond in time and space to that message. So that, that gospel message, it's, it's not a sales pitch or a gimmick. We, we, we've heard the gospel rehearsed already this morning. We've heard it in prayer and in recitation and in song, right? It, it's a proclamation of the mighty acts of God to save sinners. It's a God-praising proclamation of the wondrous work of Jesus Christ in going to the cross on our behalf. It's a God-exalting proclamation of the awe-inspiring act of raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And so speak of those acts to one another. May they always be on our lips. Speak to each other, speak to your neighbors, speak to yourself. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Here we begin a bit of a transition in David's psalm. And it's here that things really get both interesting and wonderful. God is praised both for his great goodness and his righteousness. Now these are typically not attributes we associate with transcendence. They are attributes of what we call his eminence. So here's definition of imminence for you. Imminence refers to God's nearness. It's the exact opposite of transcendence in that regard. In contrast to transcendence where God is highly exalted, wholly other, dwelling on high, so radically different that he has to dwell apart from us, imminence stresses God's involvement here with human affairs, his intimacy with his people, his touch his care, his concern. Imminence extols God for being close. Transcendence elevates God, extols him for being the one who is high and lifted up. Imminence celebrates the God who comes down to dwell with his people. So in this psalm, what we find is that God is supremely worthy to be praised because he is imminent. We've already heard that God is supremely worthy to be praised because he is transcendent. Here, God is supremely worthy to be praised because he is imminent, tenderly near his people. When we speak of the God who is near, we speak of the God who sees, the God who hears, and the God who heals and gives. It's the testimony of the Bible and of this psalm in particular that God is good. God is good. But but what does that mean? What does that mean? And again, it's pretty much what you would expect. To say that God is good means that he's benevolent. God acts for the benefit of others. But David fleshes this out for us in the psalm. Look, look at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, great in faithful love. Here, David quotes Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Bible verse that's quoted or alluded to most often by the scriptures in all of the scriptures. In that passage, you might remember, Moses asked the Lord 
show me your glory. <laughs> That's a pretty big ask, isn't it? <laughs> right? And it's like, I, I don't know, I, he must have been feeling pretty good about himself. <laughs> show me your glory. That's all, right? That's all. Uh, but, but God says, okay, <laughs> okay. God responds by sheltering Moses behind a rock and then parades before him, whatever that means, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's inequity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Isn't it remarkable? Show me your glory, Lord. Okay, I will. And maybe you would expect light and thunder and lightning, but what do you get? An announcement of God's character, his kindness, his generosity, his compassion. In God's economy, what is it that makes him glorious? It's who he is. We learn that God's glory is tied to more than just his resplendent majesty and his other transcendent qualities. In God's estimation, he is great precisely because he is good. God is glorious because he's gracious and compassionate, patient, abounding in love. God's gracious. To say that God's gracious is to say that God grants goodness and kindness to sinful people when God has nothing to gain by being kind. It is, as as we would typically say, what's grace? Unmerited favor, right? Unmerited favor. God's not our debtor when he shows grace, it's just sheer kindness with nothing in it for God. God's compassionate. To to say that God is compassionate means that he's moved by to kindness through mercy and pity. When when God feels compassion toward you, he's motivated to action. Uh, You know, as, as you read through the gospels, what is it that motivates Jesus more than anything else to act? It's compassion. Compassion. In, in, in an English translation, we might say Jesus' heart went out to the people, but in, in, in the Greco-Roman idiom of the day, it's he was moved in his guts. <laughs> it, that's, you wouldn't put that like on a Hallmark card or anything. Um, it, so like I only do Greek if it's like funny or, or helpful, and, and this is funny. The, the, the Greek term for compassion is splunkna, splunkna. You could write that on a card. It'd be really nice. I'm, uh, my splunkna is moved. Uh, base, and it's, it's in your bowels. Jesus would see a need and his stomach would like well up. He was moved to action. And, and, and that's God. That's who God is. Motivated to action through mercy and pity. We celebrate that and we say, God, you're compassionate. You're compassionate. God's also patient. When we say that God's patient, we mean that he's we mean he's long-suffering. Our, 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 our God is the God who waits. Isn't that great? That God waits. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I mean, most of the time when we think of greatness or goodness or, thing that's, or something that's worth uh, celebrating, we think, oh, our God acts. Our God acts. But God is often extolled because he doesn't act. He doesn't act. He doesn't strike out in judgment which is his right, but instead he endures and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. In in a sense, 
the patience of God is the opposite of compassion. Compassion moves him to action. God's patience restrains his action. And then finally in that passage, faithful love of God, faithful love. We're told that God is great in this. Faithful love translates that famous Hebrew word chesed, right? It's, it's often just defined as loving kindness or covenant love or loyal love. What it means is that when God makes a promise to love a people, he stubbornly keeps that promise. He keeps loving and keeps loving and keeps loving. It's like blood love, if you will, a love that's thicker than water. It's like a mother or father's stupid love for their kids, right? And, and, and isn't it great to be just stupidly loved? When, when there's nothing in it for the person who loves you, they're just going to keep loving in spite of. That's God's loyal love. As we read through this passage, look at how all of these imminent attributes, the God who is near, tenderly near, speak to the reality of who God is. Verse 9, the Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. Verse 10, all you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. Verse 14, the Lord helps all who fail. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his actions. We're used to reading that, right? We're used to reading such declarations, but if we pause and think about it, it's really incredible. This is who God is. We're, we're so used to this kind of language of God that we take it for granted. Oh yeah, God's patient. Oh yeah, God's long-suffering. Oh yeah, God's compassionate. Yeah, yeah, I've read it before. But we ought not to take it for granted. What other God is like this? A God who is both transcendent, high and lifted up, and imminent, tenderly near. I mean, if you were to look at the, the pagan pantheon of gods, that's unheard of. It's unheard of. A God who's both high and exalted, who also stoops down to passionately care for his people. Who else but our God is like this? Many of you have probably read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful passage in it where um, these human children have not met Aslan, the great king, yet. And they're asking questions about him. And, and, and they're told by Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are, I went to Oregon State. I've got to mention beavers anytime I can. Uh, right? in, in, uh, they're, they're, they're told, these children are told that, that Aslan, the great king, is a lion. And so we, we pick up the story. Aslan is a lion? The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about being around a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This this combination of transcendence and, and imminence is all through the Bible. 
And it's one of the many things that separates the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, from other contenders or pretenders to the throne. For example, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. Here, both the transcendence and the imminent. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. This is the behold your God and fear him transcendence kind of language. Very next verse. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are nursing. Behold your God. Imminent, tenderly near. Who is like him? We should marvel and delight in this great God who is simultaneously transcendent and imminent, both great and good. Because what this means for us is that God is, is not merely the one who sees our hurt, but is, on, is uncaring. He just kind of sees it from distance on high. No. It means that when he sees our hurt, he is moved by compassion. And then he has all of his greatness to bring to bear on that situation. And if God is moved by compassion to help, there is nothing on heaven or earth that can keep him from acting. And if God is committed to patience, then there is no power or authority in heaven or on earth that can direct him to act before he deems best. We have to, we ought to delight in the God who is both transcendent, who is also imminent, the God who is high and lifted up, who also stoops down to answer the prayers of his children. And if this is the case, then it seems that our prayers ought to reflect that. We should be reverent because God is transcendent, great, but we should be bold in our requests because God is near and he hears. We ought to never waver in doubt or unbelief that God has what it takes to care for us because he is great and good. We might not know his good intentions, but we never ought to doubt that his intentions are good. read through all these verses, that he lifts up the oppressed. He helps those who fall. God is the good and benevolent provider. Christian, you know, right? Every good thing comes from the hand of God. He's lavished you with blessing upon blessing. And, and perhaps, like in this moment or over these last 18 months or so, you don't really feel like God has lavished blessing upon blessing upon you. And, and, and I get it. I get it, right? There, there's still need and there's still frustration and this world is broken. But, but remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. In chapter 8, verse 32, he said, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Everything. That, that Greek word, it means everything. It's a good translation, right? At great cost to himself, God's already provided for your greatest need. The rest is easy. It's just details. Maybe 
you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. Well, you need to understand this about God. He is good. According to the scriptures, every good thing that you have comes from his hand. We just read that, right? Every, even those things that you've worked hard for, they are a generous gift from a benevolent God who loves you and causes the rain to fall upon you, upon everyone, the just and the unjust. Every breath that you take, every morsel of food that passes your lips, every beat of your heart is a gift from a generous God. So be thankful, all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, we ought to respond with thanksgiving. And now, I, I've already said God is self-sufficient, he's transcendent, does God need your thanks? No, he doesn't. But he desires them. He wants your thanksgiving. Are you self-consciously thankful? Do, do you sometimes fall into the trap of believing that, that you deserve everything that you have? That you've somehow managed to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, whatever that means. Uh, David confessed that the faithful bless the Lord. That's what he said in our song. The faithful bless the Lord. That all should thank the Lord. So it is an act of faithfulness for you to give thanks. Maybe your prayer life isn't exactly what you want it to be. Maybe you try to pray, you can't think of what to say. Well, here's something you could do. Just rehearse the blessings of God in your life and thank him for all he's done. You might remember the old hymn, Count Your Blessings. Right? You think... But you're a theology professor. You're going to quote that old hymn? It's like, yeah, because it's really good theology. <laughs> this part, right? It's really good. It, so amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journeys in. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. That's really, really good theology. Well, we transitioned it to God's kingdom. And what we find in this, the rest of the passage, which, which speaks of the kingdom of God, is that the kingdom is the way that it is because God is who he is. Verse 11. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. Here in verse 13, we have, again, that fusing of greatness and goodness again. The God who is the awesome king, his dynasty is unparalleled and unthreatened, is simultaneously faithful and gracious. And we learn something vital about the kingdom of God here. The kingdom is and will forever be what it is like because the king is who he is. Now for David, the kingdom was a distant hope. For us though, it's already begun in Christ. And, but what was true for David is true for us. The kingdom of God is what it is right now and will forever be what it will be precisely because of who God is. That is, the kingdom partakes of the character of the king. And that's happy news for us. 
because our awesome transcendent God who is high and lifted up, terrible in power and wonder, he's the king, I tell you, is simultaneously the imminent God who is moved by compassion, full of grace and committed to loyal covenant love. He is good. So the kingdom of God is full of mercy, compassion, grace, and faithful love because God is full of grace and mercy, compassion, and faithful love. And and some might think that the kingdom ought to be characterized by power and glory and other transcendent things. That's what we think of, right? The kingdom of God, power, glory. But at its inauguration, it was characterized by the imminent attributes of grace, mercy, compassion, and faithful love. And, and, and I know that like for the Jewish people today, and maybe sometimes for us, it's like, man, I wish Jesus would have just you know, taken off the tatters and revealed his glory. But, but I'm not sure we ought to think, about, think of it that way. When Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, he wasn't just kind of slipping something in under the radar that he could get in. He was revealing the very character of the kingdom. We expect the kingdom of God to be awesome in power and judgment, but Jesus came in compassion and kindness. That's what the kingdom is like because that's what the king is like. Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom, presented himself not as a king resplendent in glory, although he certainly is all that, but a king who draws near in humility and compassion. Jesus, the king of kings, introduced himself this way. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. An awesome kingdom. We would expect the king to say, what can you do for me? Jesus, the king of the kingdom, says, what can I do for you? Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what your king is like. What an incredible kingdom. Because we, we know he's got all the power that we associate with the kingdom. But when he introduced the kingdom, this is how he introduced himself. He's the gentle king who is good. And that goodness manifests itself in grace and compassion and mercy. He came to build his kingdom, kingdom, but to build it upon a foundation of all that he is. Certainly in his transcendence, but in his eminence as well. He is the eternal son of God. The second member of the Trinity who came, though not as a conquering king, on a stallion of victory but entered our existence as a baby born in the most humble of circumstances. He, he came not demanding obeisance and servants, but he came healing and feeding others. That humility took Jesus all the way to the cross where he would die the humiliating death that we deserved. And he did so willingly, out of love for God the Father and love for us. So don't be fooled by the shame that Jesus endured at the cross. I mean, Jesus is simultaneously almighty God, possessing all the transcendent attributes of greatness. Death could not hold him, and he rose triumphantly from the grave. So this psalm ends with an admonition to call to this Lord while you can. 
Look at the last verses. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of all those who fear him. He hears their cry for help. He saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. If you're listening to this and and you, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you need to understand that the nearness of God comes with a sharp edge. Because God is near, the wicked are deluding themselves if they think they will get off scot-free. God is watching, and he is ready, able, and willing to judge. He must judge. The only reason judgment has not come is because he is patient, patient with you right now. And if God is the way this psalm describes him to be, then how could he not judge? In fact, his judgment is an expression of his righteousness and his goodness. The hope of the cosmos rests in the character and goodness of God. And when we look at the state of things in the world, the the hope of the cosmos actually rests in God judging to make it right. A world where everything continues on as it currently is, cannot endure before a holy God. And if we really knew what we wanted, if we really knew what we truly desired, we would not want this world to continue as it is. The moral confusion in our world is heavy. The moral rebellion is even heavier A renewed world, the consummated kingdom of God, must have judgment. And that's going to start with each one of us. But our holy God, who judges in transcendent glory, is still the merciful and compassionate king who is near, inviting you to repent. He will destroy the wicked. We're warned of that in this psalm. Make no mistake about it. But while you can, call out to him. Cry for help. He is compassionate. He will be moved to forgive you. We know that because he paid the price himself that makes possible his forgiveness. Repent and believe the gospel. Christian. Call out to the Lord in truth. Whatever your need, whatever your desire, Jesus Christ, our great King, lives even now to intercede for you. And so the psalm ends then pretty much where it began. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. You come full circle, right? David began where he now ends, with a call for and commitment to praise. And his song, as we've seen, Psalm 145, it's a beautiful song, isn't it? It's a great song, fitting to be sung for the Lord. But Christian, know this, we can sing a better song. Why? Because we know Jesus. We know Jesus. All of these things are true of the king, but we know what they look like 
incarnated, don't we? As good as David's song is, we can sing a better song about this same God and King, celebrating the exact same things, but with greater precision, greater understanding, greater knowledge of God, color, if you will, because we know Jesus. We know that Jesus Christ is the perfect example of both transcendence and imminence. The holy God who draws near to save and love a people like us to the very end. Amen? Amen. Let me, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we extol you as, as both the, the transcendent great God and the imminent God who is good. There is no one like you. There could not be anyone like you. Your greatness is unsearchable. Your imminence and kindness and compassion toward us, it brings us to our knees. We, as part of the world, can imagine gods who are great. But one who is as great as you, who condescends to care tenderly for us. Thank you. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. We put our lives into your hands. Take them. We trust you with our lives because you are great to hold on to them and you are good to tenderly care for them. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our great God and King, we pray. Amen.